Well, this afternoon, uh, we're going to be continuing in our first Sunday Psalm series, this being the first month of a uh, first day of a month. We'll be continuing that series today in Psalm 32. That means that we have been working on this particular series for 34 months, I believe, for a couple of the Psalms. We, no, 35, a couple of the Psalms we had to break up into three parts and two parts, respectively. So, and as I've said before, I plan on uh, my tenure here being at least making it through this Psalter, preferably longer. Uh, that means that uh, that's uh, at least 150 months. So, the Lord uh, provide that. Of course, I plan on being here longer. So, <laughs> Amen. So, let's uh, hear from God's Word as we hear uh, from the 32nd Psalm today. Let us give attention to God's holy word, to his voice to us. A masculine of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, though my groaning through, through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Let us pray. Our Father, it is our joy and our privilege to be able to hear your word, to read these, your words. And we pray that we would receive that which we heard, not as simply words on a page or uh, helpful advice, but rather as your word, as your voice to us, that we would believe it and submit to that which we have just heard. Father, we ask that you would do your good work in each of us and that you would Take the word and plant it deep within us. We pray, Father, that we would receive it by faith. And we ask, O Lord, that by the work of your spirit, you might increase and strengthen our faith. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have. We pray, O Lord, that you would rest upon this preacher, that you would chain him to the truth of your word so that he might freely declare truth, that he might do so with accuracy, with understanding, with clarity. These things we pray, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. The last two messages, we've been in Psalm 31, the last two Psalms messages. We looked at Psalm 31, and we saw Christ running throughout that entire psalm. Uh, For with those words, into your hands I commit my spirit, For when Jesus uttered those words, he harnessed this psalm. And again, we've been learning as we read through the psalms, as we study the psalms, each one we look at, we must always ask, how does Christ relate to this? And how does this relate to Christ? And we saw that by the fact that he cried out for mercy, 
He was heard on our behalf because he rose from the dead. He cried out that the Lord might deliver him, as we've been learning in the book of Hebrews. And the Lord delivered him, for he rose him from the dead. And because he did so on our behalf, because he committed his soul without any error to God on our behalf, we commit our souls to him and do so through Jesus Christ. And now we see here in this 32nd Psalm, we see the results of Jesus' travail for us, of his suffering, of his pain, of his humiliation, and that is our forgiveness. We see the great result of that is forgiveness. The very opening statement pronounces a, a blessing, in which he says, Blessed is the one whose transgression or sin is forgiven. And the psalm closes with what we might say the result. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, you upright in heart. It's bookended by those two ideas. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven and closes with the, the exhortation to be glad in the Lord, which is the result of having union with God through Christ Jesus on account of the forgiveness of sin. And this psalm, this blessed 32nd psalm, revolves around this idea of the joy of being forgiven from its blessed state to the urgency to admit one's need of forgiveness and to our relation we have to God because of that forgiveness. There are those, whether because of religious convictions or simply because of pride, Maybe we might even find that in our very own hearts who struggle with the fact that we actually need forgiveness or consider it a shameful thing, a shameful mark of weakness to go and say, I need forgiveness. There are some religions that cannot fathom their God as forgiving because it would then make their God weak. Or we might stand and say, I really don't have anything to be forgiven of. In a sense of pride and saying that I'm not that bad. It's not like I'm Jeffrey Dahmer. Or we might say, why should I even ask for forgiveness? Because I try to do what's right. We'll learn more about that as we get into the psalm. But the basic point of the text is this. The happiness of man consists in the free forgiveness of sins. There's nothing more terrible than having God as our enemy. And there is nothing more wonderful than having God as our friend due to his forgiveness. The psalm was divided up into six sections. Uh, Verses 1 and 2, we see the statement of the blessed state of being forgiven. In verses 3 and 4, we see the fallacy of denying the need for forgiveness. In verse 5, we see the act of humbling ourselves before God. In verses 6 and 7, we see the relation of God to those of those forgiven. In verses 8 and 9, we have lessons learned. And then verses 10 and 11, a statement of where true happiness really lies. And so we'll get into the first two verses and we see this statement, the, the assertion of the entire psalm, the blessed state of being forgiven. For he says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord commits, uh, counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. We have this assertion, there is a truly blessed state in which someone can exist. And that truly blessed state is this, the state of being forgiven. That is a truly blessed state in which one can exist. It implies also that there's another state. We might say a not-so-blessed existence. And that not-so-blessed existence is that of one of not being forgiven. And then we see what the definition of that forgiveness is here. For what, what does he say at the end of verse 1? But whose sin is covered. In verse 2, we have a second statement, blessed, uh, in which he says, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. 
For to be forgiven means this. Our sin is covered. It means this. God does not count our iniquity against us. It is as though we've been through the court trial and we have pled guilty to the charges. And the judge stands up and the judge says, will the defendant rise? And the, 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 judge, the, the judge then le- levies out his verdict, even though we pled guilty. And he says, the court finds the defendant not guilty. That is the blessed state of being forgiven. It is that iniquity no longer being counted against us. It is as though one being buried in debt suddenly finds that they are no longer in debt and those debts are no longer held against them. Furthermore, the one who is blessed and who the one who is blessed, the one who is forgiven, he says, is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. What does he mean by deceit here? Other ways of translating this word are we could no guile or no deception or no malintent. Think of guile as something that is evil intent or deception, trying to hide something, or malintent with malice. What do we have meant here? Does it mean that we have to have a certain level of sincerity to qualify for forgiveness, a perfect sincerity? Well, if that's the case, as as we've learned many times, if that's the case, all of us are in for a rude awakening because none of us have the sincerity to qualify for forgiveness. Or maybe we have to have a sufficient level of, of sorrow. And while we must be sorrowful for our sin, that level of so- there's not a grade that says, okay, you've reached the level of sorrow, because the sorrow is not, our sorrow is not perfect. It is leavened with pride and with sinfulness. It's actually informed by the following verses. In verses 3 and 4, when he speaks of the wasting away because he kept silent. That is, the one who has deceit is the one who hides his or her sin under the pretension that there really isn't a need of forgiveness. The one who won't admit their own sinfulness. 1 John chapter 1, verse 6 through chapter 2, verse 2 declares that the context of 1 John is there appears to have been a group of people or a community that have departed from the fellowship, having begun teaching false doctrine of sorts. And in that false doctrine is some sort of sense where we have no sin anymore. There's no sin to be forgiven. But he says this, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. We can see that kind of deception and deceived uh, a heart uh, with deceit, a heart with guile in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 19, in which we... Luke, in, in Luke, where we have the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee, and I'm sorry, Luke chapter 18, verses 9 and following, speaks of two men who went up to the temple to pray. There was a Pharisee, and the Pharisee went before the Lord and said, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But notice, 
He went to the Lord and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men. He thanked God for his self-righteousness. He went before the Lord with a deceitful heart, thinking he did not need forgiveness. But then there was the tax collector. And the tax collector stood far off. He wouldn't lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So we see that the deceitful heart here is is defined by what follows in this psalm. It has to do with hiding our sin and refusing to acknowledge the need of forgiveness. One might even have a stung conscience, but harden ourselves and ignore the threatenings. We might laugh. One might laugh and revel in sin. But ultimately, one will be rendered unhappy not having their sins forgiven. Or we might seek to soothe our consciences with ineffective remedies, false sacrifices. Or might try to soothe our consciences with pursuing things or or trying to build a grand storehouse for ourselves. We'll discover all those things do not soothe a stung conscience. In both of those cases, both refuse to seek happiness in the fatherly, fatherly love of God demonstrated for us in Christ Jesus. So the blessedness is in both the forgiveness and in knowing that we need to be forgiven and approaching God for such. These first two verses are also quoted verbatim in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. Which he says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as, as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are, are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What do we have here in this language of forgiveness, but a picture of what Paul's talking about in Romans and that of justification, that of our sins being removed on one hand, which is the forgiveness. And on the other hand, we have the reckoning of Christ's righteousness as our own. But does God simply forgive sin without our sin being dealt with? Would God be just to forgive some simply arbitrarily and to others mete out the justice deserved? No. His forgiveness is based on the death of Jesus Christ, for sin has to be atoned for. He, through his death, atoned for our sin. We see that in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26, when we see that there's a new righteousness that has been made known to us, a righteousness that is from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Not, there's no distinction for all, whether Jew or Gentile, which is what Paul spent Romans chapter 1, verse 17, 18, all the way up to then making the case for that all, whether Jew or Gentile, are under the curse of the law that says do this and live. And we don't do that, so we are cursed. And we're justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ. And He was put forward as a sacrifice for our sins. And it says at the end of that passage, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. For it went on to say that he had previously left sins committed, past, uh, that sins had been committed before had passed over. How would he be just in not meeting justice out against those sins unless some sort of wrath was poured out upon them? They were pour, his wrath was poured, about, poured out upon Christ Jesus for those who trust him. And so thus he is just in forgiving our sins. And so we have this blessed state of being forgiven laid out for us. In verses 3 and 4, 
the psalmist then, who would be David, then writes out and declares his fallacy in denying his need of forgiveness in not seeking it. We see what having a heart of deceit looks like. And what does he say in verses 3 and 4? For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groanings all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This heart of deceit is one that doesn't reckon with sin and acknowledge the need of forgiveness. He says, I kept silent. About what did he keep silent? He kept silent about his own sin. He kept silent about his own need of forgiveness. For in verse 5, we have that very important word, that very important contrast, I acknowledged my sin to you. He kept silent about his own sin. Think of David after his great series of sins against God, when he sinned against Uriah in his sin against and with Bathsheba. What did he do? He tried to cover up his sin against and with Bathsheba by, by trying, first of all, to make it look like that the uh, newly conceived child was of, your, of his, her husband Uriah. When that didn't work, he arranged to have Uriah killed in battlefield. It took the prophet Nathan confronting him with a story of a man who did a very unjust thing. And Nathan said, what should happen to a man? And he said, well, that man should be killed. And Nathan looked at him and said, you're the man. And it is then he said, I've sinned against the Lord. Whether that is in view in this particular instance, we don't know, but that is an example. And we can look at Psalm 51. We can see when he was his fessing up and his repentance before the Lord in his confession of his sinfulness. We can see that cry reading the 51st Psalm, which we're going to quote from in brief in a little bit. But those very first words, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me with hyssop. He was silent with regards to confession, though he might not have been silent with regards to sorrow, for he knew the sorrow and judgment of God. What we see David saying here in this psalm is expressing here in this statement, My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. He was experiencing estrangement from God, separation from God. He could not, he sensed that the smile of God was no longer upon him and is holding on to his, little, his sin and refusing to acknowledge it by refusing to own up to, the, to, to it caused him great grief. Calvin, John Calvin in his commentary on this said that David realized that there is nothing so miserable as being at odds with God and that we cannot understand any happiness, any joy as great as the favor of God that comes about because of this truth. Blessed is the one whose sin is forgiven, against whom God does not hold his or her iniquity. We can learn this. No matter where we turn, no matter to whom we go, no matter how much we might cry, no matter when it might have happened, and no matter why, our pain, our guilt, our malady finds no relief or lightning until we know the favor of God through the forgiveness of sins in Jesus Christ. Proverbs 28.13 speaks on this. I'll give you a moment if you wish to turn there. Turn there. I hear pages turning, and I want to make sure everyone gets a chance to turn there if they so wish. Proverbs is the book right after Psalms. 
says, whoever conceals his righteousness, his, sorry, repeat, whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. The one who conceals his transgressions is not going to get anything from God, is not going to have any favor with him, but rather the one who turns will find mercy. The one who acknowledges sin and seeks God's forgiveness is the one who finds mercy. And we may think of this just in terms of the one who is not a believer. But this is for us too. How often do we soothe our sorrows, our pains, our guilt by turning to work? by turning to hobbies, which are good things. Those are not bad things. But turning to those to soothe our guilt, our pains. Or even turning to recreation, again, which is not a bad thing. Those are good things, but they're not the greatest good. Or turning to distractions, when all along there is one who is ready and joyous to receive us in our confession and cry of neediness because His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, lived the righteous life that we could not live and died the death that should have been ours and rose from the dead. And thus, we have a Father who is ready and joyful to receive us in our time of need. How often we do not gain the benefit of that because we turn to other things. And our sin does not need to take on the form of open and notorious rebellion against God. My notorious is something that's, oh yeah, that's pretty obvious. But pridefulness, self-sufficiency, neglecting the means of grace are all ways by which we rebel against God and ways that we justify ourselves. Just remember, there is one whose bones wasted away while he groaned because the hand of the Father was laid heavily upon him. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the one who, the one who from the cross truly found himself suffering what we saw see in verses 3 and 4, of his bones wasting away, of God's hand being heavy upon him because of our sin. But because of our union with Him, our Lord Jesus Christ, we have every reason to go to our Father in our distress. In fact, even not doing so is a reason to go to the Father in our, is a reason to go to the Father, for we are indeed finding ourselves, seeking ourselves. See, sometimes there's, we've been, men have been learning in Alistair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson's book, Name Above All Names, that there's a cunning lie that the devil has laid out for us. He's laid out many, many, many cunning lies for us, by the way, not just this one. But one that he has laid out is that he's just waiting around the corner to catch us in the act so he can destroy us. Yes, he has wrath against sin and will judge sin with severity. However, in Christ, we know the friendly face of God. For our sin has been adjudicated. That's judged in Christ Jesus. And we know this. Truly, the one who is forgiven by the Almighty knows a great blessing that is greater than any other possible blessing. The pauper who knows the forgiveness of God in Christ Jesus knows a far greater blessing than the millionaire called a productive citizen who doesn't know the love of God in Christ Jesus. And then we see what David did, which is an example for all of us. In verse 5, he says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Here we see the cure for the malady, which is the acknowledgement of our sinfulness before God. Since we know this great blessing, since we know this, that though we should not sin, 
When we do sin, as we read earlier in 1 John, what do we have? We have an advocate before the Father. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who made propitiation. It's an atonement for our sin. So then, like David, let us run into his fatherly arms and receive his grace and his peace in our time of need. Today, after the sermon, we're participating in the table of the Lord. And in so doing, one thing we are doing is we are acknowledging our need of God's grace for us, of our need for him to do his good work in us, of our need of the atoning work of Christ for us on the cross, for what is declared in those simple elements of bread and the fruit of the vine, the bread and the cup, what is declared? But the body and the blood of Christ. But our tendency, our natural-born heartbeat, our resting heart rate, we might say, is to hide and pretend that we don't have that need. We might say, I'm not that bad. But what do we see here? I will confess my sins to Yahweh, the covenant God, who's faithful to his word. We have a bad habit of trying to make ourselves feel better about ourselves by comparing ourselves with others. There's a there's a statement that if you statement by by made by some corrupt people who said if you can get someone if you can, can if you can get someone to feel as though that there's someone below them you can have them you can have them follow you for the rest of your life if you can make sure that they believe there's someone who's below them and that is our tendency is to look for somebody below us and to say, I'm not that bad, I'm not him. But no, it's in this uncovering our sinfulness, our malintent, our anger, our pride, our selfishness, that we truly find this refreshment and find that true covering. And what do we see about the nature of the confession in this text? The original language. The text here says something like this. Not simply, I will confess my sin. Or I acknowledge, my, uh, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. The way that phrase reads is something like this. I will confess against myself my sin to the Lord. That I will go to the Lord and testify against myself. And say, I have sinned. We will plead guilty. Not no contest, not not guilty, but guilty. Guilty as charged. We're making not a case for ourselves, but against ourselves. We're stating our guilt and essentially pleading guilty. The nature of acknowledging our sinfulness before God is not that of making light of it or trying to minimize it. We might go in our own minds or even go to the Lord and say, but you must understand because that guy cut me off in traffic and got me so mad. So when I came home, I, I yelled unjustly at my wife. You got to understand, I was, it was, all this happened. It was okay. While it was bad, it was justified. No, we have no basis for doing that. When we go to God confessing that at the back of that, with that at the back of our mind, we aren't truly confessing. Rather, we are to put away from ourselves all the excuses and pretenses that we use to make ourselves feel better about our sinfulness. It's not to say that there are not environmental factors that contribute to our wicked actions and rebellions, but it is to say that there is no excuse for our sin. For God, there is always an escape to willful engagement in sin. There's always an escape. For example, Joseph was it was Joseph in Potiphar's house, Potiphar's wife, 
had power over him. And she said, engage in sin with me. And he said, no, I'm going to run. So we say, but rather we say with David in Psalm 51, when he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth, in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. So we go to him honestly, and we go to him openly, acknowledging our own responsibility. On our own sinfulness. And in verses 6 and 7, we now begin to see the blessed, the nature of those blessed conditions of those who have been reconciled to God. It says, I will therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. We have access to him in our time of need to cast our cares on him when he may be found. We might say, but does it not say that it is the godly who can offer prayer? We might say, but I'm not godly enough. And you know what? You're right. You are not godly enough. I am not godly enough. But what again is the foundation of godliness? but our justification that we have in Jesus Christ. It is Christ who has qualified us for this. Our acts of righteousness are too polluted with our sin to have access to God. That pollution needs to be removed, and only Christ's righteousness and His atonement removes that. Are we not told in 1 Peter 5, verse 7, to cast your cares upon him, for he cares for us. That follows this, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God in order that you might be lifted up in due time. Then he says, casting all your cares upon him, for he cares for you. What is the language of humility but of casting our cares upon him? It is in having access to him that we find our help in time of need and shelter from the storm. And our conscience and the, de- the, the, and the devil might whisper in our ear, metaphorically speaking, whisper in our ear and say, you have too much sin. You deserve God's wrath. You deserve God's judgment. The answer to that is, yes, I do. But I know one Jesus Christ who made atonement for my sin and where he is there I shall be also. And thus we have access to God. And we see this, another benefit. He is our hiding place. When I was a little boy, like most children, one of the scariest times every day was when the bedroom door was shut at bedtime and the light was turned off. That was frightful for me. I remember that. Just most children are scared of the dark. And what would I do? I would try to find a place to hide. I wouldn't go hide in the closet because that was an even scarier place in the dark. I would hide under my covers. That was a safe hiding place for me. Or if there was a thunderstorm, I would go try to hide in my parents' bed and use them to hide me. We need a place to hide. It is in being forgiven that we have him as our hiding place. You might say, why do I have a reason need to to hide? I don't need a, I'm man enough. I don't need a place to hide. I don't need a protector. I'm man enough. Well, they come to realize one day that 
John waning it, so to speak, is not all it's cracked up to be. I recently saw a comment of someone who said on such things. It had to do with grief and pain and men seeking help from others in their grief and pain. And he said, men don't need that. Men need to be hard. Men need to be strong. We need to cover up our weakness with feats of strength. While we're in grief and pain and difficulty, rather than seeking help and cover, men need to just go chop wood. Or other things like that. Now, there's nothing wrong with chopping wood. and it's, it's a way of coping. But we can't do it by ourselves. We must approach God as our hiding place. Of course the person who said this. Might sound like an unbeliever. But he was the headmaster of a small. Yet highly sought after Christ, classical Christian school. In Florida. Until it was outed that he. Was actually a vile hater of people who are of a different blood than him. However, what do we see here? He is our hiding place. We need a place to hide and someone to cover us in our distress, and to cover our nakedness. Who is it that preserves us, who surrounds us with deliverance, but God and his friendly face towards us in Christ Jesus? We don't deliver ourselves. The worst thing we can do is to put on that stiff upper lip and pretend that everything is all right when it is not. Because we still have sin plaguing us as believers. For we still have those old habits. Let us accept the fact that we are weak and need to leave a place for weakness. There's an eschatological note to this. And by eschatological, big word, it means the end times, looking to the end when everything is made right. Of being surrounded with shouts of deliverance. The, the timeline of the Old Testament reads that of there's this time and then there's a time to come. It's the time to come where we see all those shouts of deliverance. And that time to come has come in Christ Jesus But what we have received in the now is a taste of the things that are to come. We might say that we have the dough and everything that's there, but the cake has yet to be baked. But we have all of it. And then in verses 8 and 9, we have lessons that he has learned. Just like in the 51st Psalm, David made a commitment to teach the right way that is laid out when he said, Then I will teach transgressors your way, and sinners will return to you. By word and deed, showing that one needs to be an open book before God and honest with God and with one another. It requires accountability for this to be true. Part of the instruction he says in verses 8 and 9, when he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. There in that second part, we see that he's going to instruct and teach you in the way you should go. And what is that way you should go? But to be open before God in our sinfulness. And then the instruction in verse 9, when he speaks of not being stubborn like a horse or a mule, but is to be teachable, to be taught. One who refuses to be taught is in for a rude awakening. We need accountability. And not just some sort of accountability that is private between me and God, but I must be held accountable by others. We need horizontal accountability. After all, was not Balaam rebuked through his donkey? So we should be ready to be corrected and taught by one another and not just someone who holds some sort of a title. And so the instruction is to be, te- to be humble and teachable so that we might know our sin and go to him. In verses 10 and 11, we then see where this true happiness lies. 
here we have the bookend where he says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We have the other bookend. The beginning, blessed are those who are forgiven. Now we see the contrast between those whose sins are reckoned against them and those whose sins have been forgiven. The wicked have sorrows, some now, all eternally. I occasionally like reading. Of course, I don't have much time to read stuff that is uh, not um, like Bible and theology. Uh, So when I'm making breakfast or taking a walk, I'll listen to some audio books. And I occasionally like reading um, one of my favorite genres is legal thrillers about lawyers. There's one particular author I like listening to, and I'm listening to one right now. And this author is a lawyer who likes poking fun at his own profession. He likes pointing out the misery that those who have accumulated great wealth through devious means and the emptiness they often have in selling their souls and integrity in order to move up that ladder. Oftentimes justified in the language of, well, the end justifies the means. So they can change the world. And once they get to that point, they realize, I'm not this person who started out that way and I'm now a shell of what I once was because though I have done this good I have sold my soul to get there there are many who live under a delusion and are not aware of their sorrows but there's coming a day but on the other hand for those who trust the Lord what does he say he says steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord Psalm 136, which we read at our joint Thanksgiving service with Redeemer out in Cedro Woolley. It says, what is the constant refrain and basis? What, what is the constant refrain and basis for the Thanksgiving in recounting his works in Psalm 136? It says, his steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. For by faith in Christ Jesus And in no one else we know this. The steadfast love of the Lord. And it never ceases. We see and know that which is always true of God, but hidden from those outside of Christ. In Christ we know this. The friendly face of God. And then we close with the exhortation of verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. We close with that exhortation. We have every reason to rejoice always, as 1 Thessalonians 5.16 tells us. Yes, we need to be real and to acknowledge the misery of the time in which we live, which Christians throughout ages have expressed, which is always true because sin has always been present. We should grieve. But let our grieving be tempered with this. Rejoice in the Lord, for we know his steadfast love in Christ Jesus. We must have an outlook that looks to the end that's rooted in God's free and forgiving love for us through Christ Jesus. Otherwise, we will go insane. Listen to these words from a favorite author of mine. And after you hear it, I want you to try to figure out maybe when it was written. He says, a few generations ago, the pastor of a church was the most educated and respected leader in the community. There was a day when, because of this cultural situation, uh, the church exercised the predominant influence in the structure of Western community life. That day has long passed. We have often felt that the world has thrust the church into a corner and passed us by. The church does not count in the world at large. The United Nations is not calling upon the church for advice in its solution of its problems. Our political leaders do not often depend upon leaders in the church for their guidance, science, industry, labor, education. These are the circles where wisdom and leadership are usually sought. The church is brushed aside. Sometimes we get that feeling that we really do not count. We are on the margin of influence. We have been pushed over onto the periphery instead of standing squarely in the center. 
and we pity ourselves and long for the world to pay attention to us. Thus we fall into a defensive attitude and attempt to justify our existence. Indeed, our main concern seems often to be that of self-preservation, and we assume a defeatist interpretation of our significance and of our role in the world. When do we think that might have been written? Maybe a few years ago? Nope. It was written in 1952 by one of my favorite authors, George Eldon Ladd. But he comforts the Christian with this. We have, blessed, we have the blessedness of the kingdom of God and Christ Jesus in us. And we have the free forgiveness and the sure and certain hope of eternal life. Furthermore, we must continue to encourage, exhort, and admonish each other in this regard to look to Christ, to turn from sin, to, to, and to turn to Christ, to look to Christ, to turn from sin, and to look to Christ on repeat. Lad, whom I quoted earlier, he continued with this. We also must remember this. He says, Let us be done with this inferiority complex. Let us forever lay aside this attitude of self-pity and lamentation over our insignificance. Let us recognize what we are as God sees us, and let us be about our divinely appointed program. And what is that divinely appointed program? It is to be true to His Word. It is to be a people, as the church here at Redeeming Grace Church, to be a people of the gospel. And for us in our ordinary affairs, to live in accordance with, with God's law, and then when we fail, to go to Him in repentance. God has entrusted the greatest truth that is the greatest blessing that any man or woman could ever know, and He has not entrusted it to the presidency, not to Congress, not even to the United States or any other nation that exists or has existed on the face of the earth. Rather, it has been entrusted to Jesus Christ alone, to whom, to whom this, we have been given this task of proclaiming the forgiveness that has been given to us and has been entrusted to us. So let us never depart from this truth. Let us never decide that we've outgrown it. Let us never decide that we have something better to offer to one another and something better to offer lost sinners. Let us delight and rejoice in this forgiveness and let us proclaim it. Let us be the people who truly we are, as 1 Peter 2 says, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. A people who has been called to himself in order that we might declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into light who has given us his great mercy. And that is rooted in and blessing found in the fact that we have been forgiven. And so let us proclaim this forgiveness. Our Father, we thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in Jesus Christ. We pray, O Father, that you would continue to bless us with this knowledge and lead us in the truth and lead us in yourself. We pray we would be true to this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.